A French former Catholic school teacher has opened up about the torturous and inhumane physical and psychological conditions he faced while being held hostage by Islamic militants for two months as he was serving a Christian humanitarian relief effort in Syria. Alexander Gudarsi was kidnapped in January 2020 by a Shiite militia in Iraq and held with other Christian volunteers. Blindfolded, tied, prodded by guns, he faced intense interrogations, fearing all the while that torture and death were imminent. How Alexander Gudarsky and the other detainees endured this terrible ordeal is recounted in this episode in my interview with Alexander coming up. Of course, sometimes I felt that who will care about us? We did not really, we, sometimes without, the, without hope, we were really thinking that they will let us die here. We will stay for many years and if we survive, we will be out af- after many years. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. I know you're going to be gripped by my interview with Alexander Gudarsky. He's a 38-year-old former Catholic schoolteacher who has been doing amazing volunteer work for a Christian relief agency in the Middle East. His 66-day abduction by Islamic militants has a twist worthy of a page-turner. But this is not fiction. This is Alexander's brutal experience which ended with his release from captivity in 2020 after hearing reports of the dwindling Christian population in Syria down from roughly 2 million to about 700,000 since the start of the civil war a decade ago. Godarsky felt compelled to help the besieged community. I caught up with Alexander in Paris from here in the New York area and we'll get to his story in a wee moment. First, it's time for our weekly Future Shock 2.0 segment with Ira Wolf, who has the latest on robotics and self-service technology in the retail sector of our economy. It's truly a breathtaking evolution in retail. Thanks, John. The post-pandemic era continues to be never normal. After years of mounting pressure on businesses to pay livable wages, we're now seeing many traditional low-paying jobs paying employees $15 or more per hour. This tight labor market that we've talked about on so many occasions has certainly put the squeeze on employers, cutting into their bottom line revenues. With paying minimum wage becoming a thing of the past, we might have finally reached a tipping point where automation is now more profitable and productive than ever before. In response to these rising wages and staffing shortages, many retailers and grocery delivery services such as Instacart, Uber Eats, and DoorDash are embracing a full frontal strategy to automate their services. So there's a few stories to unpack here. Automation in retail has been used to track inventory, manage stock levels, identify customer buying patterns, and of course, the self-checkout for a long time. Next up is robotics. According to a recent survey from Retail Wire, approximately 25% of retailers already have 
robotic solutions up and running in their places of business. Almost half say they will be involved with robotics during the next 18 months. One of the hottest trends in robotics we're likely to see is the demand for autonomous last mile deliveries. But that's probably going to take a few years in order for our government to catch up with regulations. In the meantime, a few retailers are taking baby steps by starting with cutting out the last few steps at the store itself. For example, curbside pickup, which grew enormously during the pandemic and customers really liked it, now accounts for about one third of all delivery options, but it takes people to fulfill and deliver those orders. Walmart and Albertsons have deployed robotic pickup kiosks. How it works is like this. Instead of the cleaning robot that seems to follow you around the grocery store, the delivery robot carries your order right to your car. Another robot picks and packs your order, similar to what happens in every Amazon warehouse. Expect to see a massive deployment of B2B robots in the very near future. And here's the second robotic solution we can expect to see shortly. There's a new company called Robomart. Instead of ordering through one of the grocery delivery apps and you run to the store and pick it up, or a human delivers it to your door, a mobile convenience store actually pulls up to your home or office. It's a store-to-your-door story. But, but like the last-minute autonomous delivery problems retailers face, RoboMart isn't able to discharge a fleet of self-driving vehicles yet. So the customer pulls out a smartphone, opens the RoboMart app, and the door of a van slides open, uncovering shelves that are stocked with snacks, personal care, and hygiene products. Each product has an RFID sensor, which automatically adds the product to the shopping cart when it's removed from the shelf. And when the customers check out, the door closes and the van moves on to the next stop. The driver, meanwhile, never left the seat. He or she remains in the cockpit and doesn't interact with customers. With the exception of the driver, the entire process is automated. Whether or not this idea takes off remains to be seen, but who says the concept won't work for everything from auto parts delivery to restaurant delivery? Of course, all this talk about robotics always leads to the dystopian future that machines take over all the human jobs. While it is true that robots and automation will destroy some jobs, the demand for more automation and more robots is increasing exponentially. Unfortunately for most businesses, automation and robotics might increase the competition for a shrinking supply of skilled workers. Humans are still going to have to manufacture, install, service, and maintain all this new technology. But that brings us back to another subject we've talked about in the past, the urgent need to up our game for reskilling, upskilling, and training. That was Ira Wolf. Ira is a workforce trends expert, a keynote speaker, and host of the popular Geek Skeezers and Googleization podcast. And speaking of must listen to podcasts, here's a reminder of the top rated. Odeon Capital Conversations podcast with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group and with yours truly also on the latest episode of Odeon Capital Conversations. We'll talk about the rise in inflation, why inflation is peaking according to Dick Beauvais and we look at the two very different approaches of two major Wall Street banks in preparation for the recession 
recession many see coming. You'll hear all about that and more on Audion Capital Conversations. It's up there on Apple, Google, Spotify and more. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. My guest is Alexandra Godarski, out with his new book called Kidnapped in Iraq from Sofia Institute Press. It's a personal account of his captivity in Iraq, describing in gripping detail his abduction by Islamic terrorists in January 2020 and how prayer and his Catholic faith, he says, got him through the brutal and punishing ordeal. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Alexander, welcome to my show. This is just a great pleasure to catch up with you. Very glad to meet you. Thank you so much. Now, it's a couple of years since your shocking ordeal in Iraq, and there was a lead up to that, and it's now the subject of your new book, Kidnapped in Iraq. It's a great read, published by Sophia Institute Press. Before we get into the book, give us some details about yourself and then we'll talk about the kidnapping, how you came out of it, and where you are at today. So I'm French. Uh, I have Persian roots. My father is Iranian uh, Shia, Muslim Shia. My mother is French Catholic. I, I born and grew up in France. I'm from the west of the country, and uh, I uh, I've joined a French NGO named uh, SOS Eastern Christian since uh, 2015. I've been head of mission of this NGO in Syria. From you were the head of the mission. You were head of the yeah, mission, exactly, SOS. Exactly. So okay. when you are the head of the mission in, in any country, you you have a budget, you have many sustainable projects to develop to help the Christian to not disappear because of the wars that were, that happened in Syria since now 10 years. Christians are really disappearing, objectively. Christians are disappearing in the Middle East. Yeah, Christians are disappearing of the Middle East uh, in any countries as, as they used to live. Uh, in Iraq, there they were 2 million because, before the war in 2003, and there are now less than 200,000. In Syria, before the, the war uh, in 2011, there were also two, 2 million, and there are now approximately 600,000. So they are really disappearing, and it's the same for the country around. Well, I'll let you go back to your story and pick up the pieces here, but they're, they're disappearing through emigration and through uh, war campaigns and uh, intimidation. Yeah, exactly, because you have uh, many different militia, many different armies. There is a fight between the Shia and the Sunni, different branches of Islam, the main branches of Islam. One supported, uh, the Shia Muslims supported by Iran, and another one, the Sunnis supported by the Qatar, the Turkey, and the Arab Saudi. So there is a big fight, and the Christians who are in the middle, they feel that the Middle East doesn't belong to them anymore, and they are the people who are directly the descendants of the of the of the of the ancestors of the of the land of the ground they are they are from here i mean this is their land this is the land of their fathers the muslim in the history they come from the the arab saudi what we call now arab saudi so they they really feel it is unfair because they are treated as a kind of spy of the western countries when the usa is targeting them so they say that you are christian so you the usa is christian also so you are the spy uh, of them so you are here to 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 make another crusade so they, they, they really feel they have no place there so i'm not saying that they are disappearing because they are all killed but they are threatened so much 
they are forced to be converted to Islam or they have to pay the jizya or they are killed. Uh, I mean, not, not for the, uh, the governments that, uh, that we have now, but when you destabilize the government, the dictator, what we call the dictator, uh, in fact, what do you have in place instead of them? You just have the jihadists. You just have the militia, the jihadists, and a, a real uh, religious war. Pick up your story anyway when uh, you got on your mission work. Take us through the events that led up to this kidnapping. Yeah, yeah. So me, I was five years in Syria as a head of mission from 2015 to 2020. Then I've been to Iraq to develop another project with my colleagues. And this is how it happened because it was 17 days after the big general Qasem Soleimani is a big general of all the Shia militia from Lebanon to Afghanistan. And he is uh, the big boss of them. He's the number two after Ali Khamenei, he's the supreme guide of uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran. And he's just, he was just killed from uh, a drone shoot uh, from USA, the three, the third of January, 2020. So we arrived 17 days after this event. So all the militia are divided between themselves. They have no leader. They have no uh, intermediaries. They have no chief. So it's the, it's the chaos inside the chaos, a kind of civil war inside the civil war itself. And we happen at this moment to help the Christian because it's also a moment we have to be there for them because it's particularly also dangerous for them more than it is already. But for them, you are Western, you are white, you're here, you have probably a link with the murderer of this general. So they catch us and of course, uh, uh, it's uh, it's violent. Uh, this is uh, very impressive. They come with two big GMC, two big cars. They put us on the side. They come with the guns. They have the militia uh, closes on them. You cannot see their face. They hide it with uh, with uh, I don't know what to say it in English. But and they come and they just uh, they just uh, they are just ready to shoot you. So they, they catch you and they take you out of the car and they put them they put you in in other cars. Then you travel like one hour and a half. Uh, uh, without any possibility to to see what's happening uh, out of the cars, they put they slap you your head to not see anything. They rob you everything you have. They put pressure on you. They ask you many questions. Everything is in Arabic. You're not supposed to understand, so it's not in your interest to to, to answer them. And then they put you in uh, many different places. And uh, all this time, because it was like more than two two months, they they put you from a place to another one. And uh, every time they move you from a place to a to, to a worse place, <laughs> they, they just make you believe that you are going to be free. They, they really make you believe that you will be free. And in fact, they are just moving you from a place to another one. And after, uh, in fact, you can imagine what's happening for, for all this time. It's a simulation of execution. Uh, you can hear people dying around because they are tortured. You, you hear the, the animals, savage animals who are around the place you are in captivity and you hear the, the, the guys shooting them with automatic weapons. Sometimes they forget to, to give us food. So we are like with two, two boxes of tone, uh, fish tone, uh, eating for uh, four person uh, in three days. We lost uh, many, many weight. Me, myself, I lost like 15 kilos uh, at this moment. I mean, it's two months. So it's, it's uh, every day you think when they, they lock the door and they enter inside the, the room, what you call the room, you think it's your, it's your last moment. You think they will come to shoot you. It's not obvious to know exactly what. This was a, a shocking ordeal, uh, which is an understatement. So just to be very clear about this, 
after traveling back and forth on this 12-hour bus ride from Damascus to Aleppo regularly for 18 months, and it's it's a rough terrain, uh, that 12-hour bus ride. It's, you're not on a highway. You were abducted along with three other charity employees, the SOS group, and held captive by these Iraqi terrorists uh, during that trip to Baghdad in January 2020. And as you were just describing there, you went without food, you sometimes didn't eat for more than a day. And as you said, you shared maybe a can or two of tuna with four other people. Was there any motive given by the extremist Muslims, Shiite militia they've been described as, for the abduction? Why did they say they were taking you in and, and keeping you captive? They accused us after 48 hours, someone important in the, in the room, we've, we've, we've been captive, and he accused us to be spying. So you cannot uh, deal with a man who already, already judged you. We were explaining him, we are humanitarian, we are helping the Christian, we are rebuilding the houses that Daesh destroyed, the Islamic State destroyed after beheading many people, after putting them to exile. We are just helping them to come back to their land. We are building houses and say, no, 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 you are lying, you are just a spy. And you are paying the, the people to go to the demonstration. It was the time of the big demonstration. A lot of people were de making demonstration against Iran. USA is behind the people to make demonstration against Iran, and Iranians are behind the people making demonstration against USA. The country is literally shared by these two powers, Iran and USA, and we've been in the middle. So they accused us to be the spy of USA and to be the, the one who are paying the people to be against Iran. You cannot deal with them. You are just done, in fact. They, if they decide to kill you, they kill you. Uh, it was, in fact, what I mean is that the speech was not religious. It was politic. So, so let's be clear about this. They didn't bring up in, in any explicit way your Catholic faith, because you are a Catholic, and we'll talk about that in a moment. You have uh, an interesting background uh, as regards your faith, but that didn't come into the conversation all that much. Sometimes, uh, I mean, you know, the Shia, they are well organized. They have leaders, uh, they respect the, the hierarchy, and uh, they, they, they are not like the Sunni, I mean, to persecute the, the, the Christian. Uh, but they do, they do, they kill a lot of Christians for Iraq, but we are foreigners. So the problem for them is more politic than religious. But sometimes, yes, of course, they took our rosaries, they took everything that we, we can use to, 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 to feel that Jesus is close to us because you really think that your moment is the last one. Sometimes they just, well, what are you saying to God? You are praying to him. But they were never uh, judging this. They were never making problems for that. The, the hunger they can have is more because of the country you represent. If we've been, if mm. we had been, for example, English or American, I think they would have killed us. But because we're French, uh, you know that when uh, USA invaded uh, Iraq, the, at the time of Jack Chirac, we didn't follow USA. And the USA was so angry from us, they boycott uh, the wine and the cheese. And from because of this, I think they didn't, uh, there is not a lot of problem with France. Was there a certain random nature about your abduction and the abduction of your colleagues or 
were there a lot of abductions in the area during this volatile period? Were you the only ones abducted? In fact, in the place we were, we, we had no information of what's happening outside. But sometimes we were hearing voices from outside and we heard that they were keeping other people and they were speaking to them in a foreign language, like sit down, don't speak, one by one. So they were telling them to, to just be silent and to enter into the same kind of rules that they put us. So we were not alone. And it seemed that they built a, a kind of jail just for us because, because they were always working around the, the place we, we were captive. And they were building many, many different places. And sometimes we were hearing them in the middle of the night coming with other guys with the cars and putting them like prisoners like us. It was a miserable, lonely existence. And the Christian Post wrote a piece about this that describes the conditions you lived in. It noted how the militants kept you on a coal floor, which you had mentioned to me. At times, uh, you and the others covered yourselves in blankets with a stench in the area that was often more difficult to bear than the floor itself. Your eyes were covered with blindfolds or goggles that were spray painted black inside and out to prevent you from seeing. Really extraordinary and just hard to imagine. And you went through this for 66 days. Did they say to you what they wanted from having you captive? Did they make any demands? Were they negotiate some ransom? In fact, it's, it's, um, it's a kind of puzzle. You can, you can, you can try to, to have the, the, the picture, the main picture, particularly after you've been liberated, because when you are inside, you know nothing. You know nothing and they don't want you to know. They never ask you any questions. They just put you here. They make you, they want you to believe they are from the government. But it doesn't mean it's, it's a lie, but it's not completely true also. They are maybe dealing with the government, but they are militia working for Iran. So they have... A, they have, uh, uh, they are, they are shared with the official and the military militia. And they never ask us anything. They just, uh, they just, they just catch us here. And after we've been liberated, we, we've learned that 200, 200 French soldiers have been sent back to France the day before our liberation. So I think it's not, I think it's official. I mean, this is the deal. They want, it's like at the time of the Hezbollah, I don't know if you remember in uh, 1983, when there was the Drakkar operation from the Shia in Lebanon, in Beirut, they killed uh, 200 uh, American GIs and 45, uh, 55 or 54 uh, French soldiers. They, 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 they use this kind of operation to evacuate any Western presence in the area because they consider this region is theirs. So when they used to do this with us, they used us to put the French out of the country. This is the Iranian land. Iraq belongs to, the, to us. And they want to use this kind of pressure against the Western countries. So this is what happened with us. But you feel that themselves, of course, they are so religious. We're hearing them uh, listening to many religious Shia songs. They put us, for example, many times the Quran uh, singing with a CD-ROM, uh, CD, uh, 
to, to our doors night, day, day, night for a for whole week. So it's also uh, used to, to torture you, just to, to break your brain and to never let you sleep, always with the light. Did you suffer serious physical violence at their hands? No, no, it's, uh, it's something that never happened. We've never been hidden. But as I told you at the beginning, it's a miracle that it was just 66, 66 days. This militia uh, kidnapped a few years ago English people. They killed four guys on five. The one who stayed alive was the most important, and they kept him two years and a half. We were not supposed to stay two months. It was supposed to, to, to be so longer. It was a miracle that it's been so short. And who knows what can happen, even if after two months, it was not it was not easy. It was not easy, even if they didn't hit us at this moment. But who knows what can happen after six months when you don't have what you want? Why not to kill one of them? So that's why the first thing they ask you is, are you married? What is your job? How old are you? Because they want to know for who you can be important. And the, the, the one who will be the less important for them is the one who is single, is the one who is the younger, is the one who has no children. There is, no, a lot of, there is not a lot of pressure to, to bring him back home. So they will put the pressure on the others, but they can sacrifice one of you. So this is something that, that can happen in the process. So we were thinking about this because we know that those militia, they do these kind of things. It's something normal, 40 years of war in Iraq. Life has no value. There is no value. We can be someone like that just, just to, to, to accelerate, to make faster the, the, the process of the negotiation. But what are they dealing for? Are they asking for, for money, for I don't know what, for position of their, of their army, of their militia? Is it, 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 it was Iran or it was a militia who took benefit of the murder of Qasem Soleimani, who was Iranian himself, to be independent from Iran? Was it, you know, maybe they wanted also to, to show to Iran, now we do what we want. You are not our boss anymore. Your boss is, is dead. We, so we cannot know if it's really from Iran or if it was something uh, that the militia did from themselves. I don't know if you get me well, but yeah, it's very difficult to... I want to pick you up on something you said just a moment ago. You said that this same militia murdered others in captivity. Yeah, yeah. How do you know that? Uh, because this is something that is known. I mean, uh, in the in the in the media, in the newspaper, it's been done. This the this particular militia, militia violently um, killed others. The militia, sorry, the militia I'm speaking about is is, is uh, they are speaking about them in the media right now because in Iraq now you have fight between the people of Muqtada Sadr. The Sadrists are fighting against Asaib Ahl al Haq. And this is this militia who took us. And this is this militia who killed a few years ago many uh, British uh, people after they kidnapped them. How did you spend your days, 66 days? What did you do all the time? In fact, you are just dying alive. You are just watching the wars. You are just thinking. And your imagination is just destroying you. It's just killing you. And they know that. Whatever, whatever is happening out of these wars, or inside, you just make big, uh, you, you, and, uh, you, you make big interpretations of, uh, of, of these little things. When we hear the people who are dying just above our head, we are just thinking, 
thanks God, it could be us. And in another, and in the same time, you say maybe, maybe this is this is a, a message to tell us you are the next. So there is this kind of things you are always told to. When you are good, you see your friend who's in is depressed, who's just dying in front of you because of of hope, of missing of hope. And of course, the best weapon, the best yes, the best weapon we had it was the the, the rosary, the, the prayers. We would be mad if we if we didn't uh, pray uh, the Lord at this moment seriously. And of course, you feel also the silence of of, of God, and this is a, it, it is it is very um, painful because when you pray Him and you don't feel Him, you just you you. But I mean, there is many many different periods when you are in captivity. At the beginning, I was praying myself like in a mechanic way. I don't, I don't want to die, just like a superstition, like. Yeah, yeah, you were doing, doing it as a, a ritual, as they would say. Yeah, 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 exactly. And after that, you adapt yourself to the situation because men, people, human beings, they adapt themselves to the situation, whatever is happening, even if you didn't, of course, even if you didn't choose it. But after that, I was, I, I come down and say, this is my situation. I will die here. Or I will stay for many, many, many years because this is what they said also. So, so I am praying in a kind of way that I'm really supplying the Lord to help us. But you want an answer. You want an answer and you want it fast. So I was also upset and so angry from them. I was like, I was like hitting the walls telling, you let me, you abandon me. After all what I did, I know it was the, the pride that was speaking as an old man. I mean, you are angry. Yeah, I was so angry. And I was telling you, you, you this is, this is the, this, this is, is the thanks, I guess. Yeah, this is how he thanks me for what I did in Syria, five years taking risks on the on the on the front line and this. And after that, I mean, even this feeling is taking it from you. And after you just say, okay, I don't want to fight with you. Just sorry and please, whatever what what whatever will happen, I, I just want to to be with the Lord in my heart for for the rest of my my short life. And I was always praying, and it, it was a kind of Ignatian. Uh, Ignatian uh, retreat, I mean, spiritual retreat. Uh -huh. We're always praying, and sometimes, yeah, I felt that he spoke to me, and he really, uh, uh, he really calmed me, and uh, I was really sure that this um, this topic, this project, was to be benefit for for other pe people who are outside who are praying for us. You felt a certain calm and peace eventually. Sometimes, yes, of course, when we're praying, sometimes we're, we, 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 I understood that I was hurt. I, I received a message from the, from the Lord, like telling me, this is not from this captivity, I want to free you. Like when they were waiting for Jesus as a king, we put the Roman Empire out of the Holy Land. He told them, but I am just here to cut the link who's linking you from the hell. And I understood that he wanted to make me understand that it's from another biggest and more dangerous captivity you want to free me. It was my personal message that he delivered, that he gave me. And really, when I understood this, I accepted my condition. I accepted my condition and I was praying without asking nothing. I was just praying just to be faithful to him and to be in his heart, whatever is the situation. And it's after a few days after this that finally we've been liberated. 
Well, we're going to get to that in a moment because uh, has a, a very um, curious twist. How big was the room you and the others were in? Was there any furniture, any anything to read, any anything to stimulate the imagination, or was it just bare and cold? No, no, it was uh, at the beginning. It was just cold and smelly and. Uh... And nothing else, and they were like laughing at us. They were putting kind of pressure on us. They treat uh, they, they treat us to, to to kill us if we if we speak, if we if we make some noise, if we want to go to the toilet, what we can call toilet. That was in our room. You had to prevent them to come inside the place to to almost see uh, us, uh, watch us in the toilet. So it was uh, so a, a kind of humiliation at the beginning. After. Um, it was, they, they, they feed us, they give us the food, but it became less and less after time after time. And sometimes, you know, they bring you a cigarette. Oh, but yeah. after they bring you a box. And after they bring you the big box. But I mean, the hospitality, even from those guys, this is something normal. They are not uh, trying to be scary. But you know that they can also just cut your head or kill you if they have to do it. I mean, it's not because they are nice because they bring you a cigarette. It means that they are nice. They are just still human. I do my job. I will kill you. I will kill you. But I can be nice with you before I will kill you. They, they have this kind of uh, attitude. So it's very difficult. And you know, you have something, always something on your eyes. You cannot know what they think. You cannot read them. You just have to to feel with what you hear. And this is this is something that you have to adapt yourself also. But... Yes, after it was, uh, we were just, I mean, the, the, the days were so long. You have nothing to do. But after they bring us, uh, they bring us many things like uh, cards, I mean, uh, to, to play cards. And you understand that it will, it will, it will, uh, we will stay for a long time. When you see, for example, a little bottle of water and after you see that, that much water, you understand, you will stay here a lot for a long time what in your mind was going on in the outside world during your captivity did you feel that the outside world knew you were abducted and was trying to free you we didn't know nothing but what i was feeling is of course you have the hope say they will know they will do something they will pray but what they can do what what else they can do and the best thing, but of course, sometimes I felt that they will let, they will let us. Who will care about us? No one know where we are. And we were hearing, hearing the, the planes. We say maybe there is a war between Iran and, and USA because it was with big, big, big pressure, big tensions. We did not really, we, sometimes without, the, without hope, we were really thinking that they will let us die here. We will stay for many years. And if we survive, we will be out of, after many years. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council.
My guest is Alexandra Godarski, out with his new book called Kidnapped in Iraq from Sophia Institute Press. It's a personal account of his captivity in Iraq, describing in gripping detail his abduction by Islamic terrorists in January 2020 and how prayer and his Catholic faith, he says, got him through the brutal and punishing ordeal. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. You had no visitors. No, never, no. No. So it, it was also very lonely. And I, I can only imagine what your family in France and everywhere were going through at this point. I'm sure you heard the stories afterwards. Yeah, of course. They said, um, of course, they were broken. They were thinking of the worst. And when they, had, they were in relations with our government, they were telling them, we know nothing. And they were asking a lot of questions. And they were just saying, we don't know. They were asking, do you think it's Islamic State? Will they behead them? We don't know. Maybe. this was, It was the answer. And they said them, this kind of situation will take a long time. This is the French service. I mean, the French uh, uh, men of the shadow who told them this. Yeah, it's uh, usual for them to negotiate in this kind of situation. And they told them this story, if they are still alive, it will be around two years and two years and a half before you will see, see, see them uh, back. So for them, it was sure that they will not see us after, after a long time. Their expectation was that you could be locked up for years and years. What a, a, a terrible, lonely feeling and the heartache and pain they went through. Bring us to the final days just before you're released. What was the reason you were released? after 66 days. In fact, uh, I told you, for example, four four times they, they moved us from a place to another one. And each time they moved us from a place to another one, it was worse than the previous one. And they already, they always made us believe that you are going to be free, you, you're going to be free. And they really, they really uh, put the form, I mean, I mean, they really uh, tell us a nice story. They were like hugging us. Uh, playing with us, taking us in their hands, uh, dancing with us, doing something like, yeah, you are free. It's free. So one day, they enter inside the room, and the man who was important would just recognize him from his cruel voice because he had a kind of cruel voice. And he said, I have a good news for you. We don't want to hear him. And it was a long time we didn't hear him. We know that he's the one who has the authority and the information. So we, we want to hear what you want to say. And he said, from this day, from today, in one week, you will be close to your family. You will be back to your family. We don't want to hear him. We know that he's lying because they lied before, as I told you. So yeah. every time. And he said, no, you have to trust me. The world has changed. The world is done. is describing us a kind of apocalypse. Everything is stopped. All the airport, international airports of each country of the world are closed. The people Poor are not out, they cannot go out. There is a big disease killing people like flies in the streets. Uh, but we don't want to believe him. This is something so stupid. What is this story? And he bring us the put the BBC on the channel. He put the TV, he put the BBC. And he show us to the street of the capital of uh, many uh, countries in Europe. Uh, he shows us the pictures of the USA, of the Middle East, and we see Many people dying, everything, people saying hi to them with the elbow, with the with the feet, this kind of thing. And and in fact, it was true after that. We understood that there was the coronavirus. 
And it was the reason for them to put us out. The coronavirus so was the reason you got released. Yeah, clearly. It was the reason for them to put us away because if we die from the coronavirus, how can they pretend to the French authorities with who they are negotiating that it's not because they hit us, they, 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 treated, they treated us in a very bad way? How they can pretend it's not because of that? If they just give uh, our corpse uh, back to our family. So they had to free us, to liberate us before that situation may happen to us. Because at this time, we're in the beginning of the coronavirus. It's not after two years, like right now, we can have the, the, the vision to understand it's that, not that much dangerous. It is, but not that much. But at this time, we are, it just started and we are close to Iran. And in Iran, there is a lot of people who are dying from this. And you can imagine the places that they put us, it was dirty. So we could be uh, contaminated by this uh, very fast. So the coronavirus struck and you were released. That was 66 days into your captivity. And you said they didn't want that on their hands. If you should succumb to coronavirus, they couldn't negotiate it in good faith, quote unquote, um, with the French authorities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clearly, this is, uh, this is what I think, in fact. And this is also the... What we what they explained us, I mean, the, the French yep. after we liberated. Had they been talking to the French authorities at any point? How did they spoke together? Mm -hmm. You don't know. No, no, really, we don't know. But I, I guess that these militias are powerful, and uh, of course, the, the French uh, uh, services who are in place in Baghdad, they were directly in touch with. The different militia to know who which which one took us because yeah. you have many many tell us about the day of your release what happened who picked you up and what was the feeling inside you and your colleagues no it was it was incredible you know uh, it it was incredible of course to to be back to to to, to normal life and to, to put this uh, this bad events uh, back uh, and um, you know for example the the, the interpreter, the translator who was with us, is Iraqi. He was, he was uh, sure to be killed. And even his wife, she ordered for the, you know, I don't know how do we call this in, in English, but the place you, you put the place. Burial tomb or? Yeah, for the grave. tomb. Mm -hmm. She ordered, yeah, she ordered the grave. The grave was in his house. So when he arrived in his house, there was his own grave. She, she, she ordered a grave because she was 100% sure that he's dead. For them, there was no any hope to, to find him back. So, and for all of us, it was, it was incredible because many people were praying. There was a lot of chain of prayers around the world, everywhere, because we had a lot of volunteers in our NGO. So we know a lot of people everywhere with the priests, with the church, all around the world. And they prayed so much for us. And it's... It was a call from them. Many people were like far from the church, far from God. And they said after to us, you were the reason uh, through, uh, through who God uh, called me. And now they, they came back to the church. They, they, they came back to the faith because of the prayers they were making for liberating us. So it's nice also to have this. Thing. And many people they say, you know, many times you pray for some things that you never know, but we prayed some, for some things that was impossible, and you are the alive proof that God uh, 
I mean, uh, it's an incredible ending. So, did they take you then to a hotel or take you to the airport? What happened on the day you were released? What were the events that eventually led you coming back to France? We've been uh, the, the, our colleagues of the NGOs. They organized a kind of uh, uh, when we arrived in France. They organized a kind of uh, dinner. All of us together with our families, but my my wife and my son who were in Syria because my wife is Syrian and my son was six months is um, was six months old when when I've been kidnapped. So I had to wait another two months to see them coming to to France because of the Corona. Everything was uh, was closed. I could not see them directly. So me, I was liberated like my friends, but not entirely. And this is in this period that I. I started to, to 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 write a lot. Alexandra, I want to get your backstory because you were abducted by extremists, is Islamic militants. Yeah, I was not exactly Muslim, but it was for me a kind of evidence to become Muslim because my father is Shia from Iran, my mother is Catholic French. But you know, in this kind of mixed couple of people who, who have children. They used to say he will choose his religion himself when he mm. will grow up. Mm. And uh, of course, in fact, no one is rising you in uh, in any religion. So my mother, she was not practicing so much, and my father also. She he didn't want me to be. Uh, he didn't want me to be Muslim, but because I grew up without him, alone with my mother and my sister, and I I, I, I grown up I grown up in the suburb of the many different cities of France. Most of the people in the suburbs are Muslim, uh, and I was—I uh, had this temptation, and I was almost going to Islam. For me, it was an evidence because this is my roots. I was—I was looking for that. And many friends who are French, hundred percent, they became Muslim, and I wanted this. But Franciscan people came to my city, and it changed my life seriously. And I was sensitive of the Franciscan about them because. My mother was reading a book of the Franciscan of the Bronx. They are speaking about so incredible stories. It was touching me so much. And I was upset from God. I was telling, these stories are nice for those guys who are in the Bronx or in Harlem. In the Bronx, New York. In the Bronx, New York. The Franciscans, Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, I believe, are called. Exactly. With uh, the general, the father Murphy, because I met him after many years after he came to France. And uh, yes, the book was Flowers in the Hair, something like that. And I, I was I was upset from God at this moment. But this Franciscan uh, came to my city, not the one of the Bronx, but Franciscan, and they changed my life. They really explained me. They showed me the face of of of, of God, of Jesus. It was not, you know, this kind of speech uh, without sense. It was it was true. It was alive. It was real. And I really fall in, God, in love with God, I mean. But after, you know, it's difficult to, to change your life uh, uh, completely. So I was always a, a foot in the street and another one in the school, one in the church, in the, another, was another one in the, in the problem, in the fight, in these kind of things. Yes, this is, this is how I grew up, to, to make it fast, to make it short. But 10 years after this, in my path, path of faith, I've decided to be coherent with my face, to not make like yo-yo, you know, to be yeah. with God and to be uh, to not be with him. So I, I, I let everything to be one year in a covenant with the Franciscan, with this Franciscan. And I stayed one year in the church, not to be a seminarist, 
but just to have time just to observe the laws of God and to observe it in my life concretely. Again, then, for clarity, uh, you grew up in a, a home that really didn't practice any faith. Uh, on the one side, your father, who was uh, nominally Muslim, and then your mother, who was not a practicing Catholic, but you had been thinking about becoming a Muslim, but you became a Catholic after your encounter with the Franciscans and your own discernment. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it was a big temptation, and thanks God it, it didn't happen. Thanks God I... I met Jesus and I've chosen him. I've chosen him, I mean. Yeah. It's, yes. You're a teacher by training. Um, I want to ask you, what's your take on the threats in the Western world from extremist Islamist groups? And I use the word carefully, extremist, because uh, would I be correct in saying that we can't paint all Muslims with the one brush? There are great Muslims and good living Muslims. What's your overall take? I mean, the, the problem regarding my experience, because it's now more than 20 years I'm traveling in the Muslim countries from Morocco to uh, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Central Asia, Middle East, North Africa. I know them and I grew up with them in France. And I have Muslim blood also. So I, I know their culture, I know what they are. The problem in the in Islam is they don't have church. You don't have a head. You don't have an interpretation of the word of God. So whoever, who wants, he can, whoever can uh, text the, the word of the Quran and say, this is the meaning of the Quran. So you cannot say, this is not Islam or this is Islam. In fact, Islam has many faces. And there is no any leader, no any responsible. So you cannot say Islam is responsible. It's never our fault. This is not Muslim who are doing this. But this is a terrible lie. Because you have also murders in Islam. Look, whatever is the school, because you have, you have Hanafi, Shafi, Maliki, Hanbali. This is the main four school of uh, teaching of the, of the word of God. And in which one of them, the more literal, uh, radical or the most peaceful of this kind of school of interpretation, all of them, they say that you have to kill someone who insult the prophet and you have to kill the Muslim who deny his face to, to take another face. So it's not to say Islam is not this. No, no, no. The reality of Islam, even if they are nice, Islam says that you have to do this kind of things if, okay? So it, you are not to think that Islam is just the Quran. It's also the Sunnah and the Hadith. Islam means Quran plus Hadith plus Sunnah. The people, they say, look, it's not written in the Quran. But they are lying because they are not just the Quran who makes the definition of Islam. This is the reality. And now, if I can say also the word, the word that the people, our Christian brothers, one in the Middle East, they say, we have the experience. We are living together with the Muslim since 1,400 years. This is our, our experience. Every 40, 50 years, we have Daesh. Now Daesh is so famous because they made a lot of video, a lot of big communication. We say, what's going on? It's not possible. And we have internet. But you think that 40 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago, at the time of the Armenian genocide with the Ottoman Empire, even before every century, you have the same thing. And we didn't have internet, but the process was the same. The accusations were the same. The way of killing was the same. It's not new. 
we recognize the trees from their fruits and we recognize what, what is from the Islam. This is the reality. And they say us, you are too naive, you are too nice, your church, your countries, you will come them without to know from where they are and you don't know where they go. And after you cry when you have some bomb uh, killing of mass murder in your streets, what, what, what we will do now? Look to the, to the Europe. We open the door that much. And now you have this kind of, uh, and it's hidden also because when it's happening now in France, they don't even speak about this in media. No, no, when they cannot hide it, of course, it appears to the media, but every week you have someone who behead another one. In France? Yeah, of course, in France. At Kili, the hands uh, of, of these um, Islam militants. Yeah, yeah, of course, maybe there is a lot of Muslims that are so nice and we say, this is not Muslim. But maybe the good Muslim are not real Muslim because the good Muslim must really mostly they are not praying, they are not going to the mosque, they are so nice. But yeah. the problem let is let me stop you there, stop. Alexandra. What what you're saying really is that there are sounds to me that there are many, many people who are Muslim by birth and raising, but they're not practicing, they're sort of agnostic, and so they're the ones who don't cause offense. But at its core, you're saying Islam, the Muslim faith, has a violent ideology. Is is that's what you're telling us? There's a there's violence imbued in, in yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Because you can be Muslim just as in a cultural way. You know, this is not like us as Christian. When you are not Christian, you are not Christian. You don't leave the traditional uh, the Christianity. But the Muslim, it's not just religious, it's political, it's social, it's cultural. So you cannot be a practitioner of Islam, but you leave it in a cultural way. So when you say Islam is bad, you offend them. You will mm. say, why well, you say that about me? But mm. the reality of the ideology, when you practice the religion, this is the terrible truth, in fact. Yeah, Even yeah. They don't want to recognize it, but this is what I saw all my life, what I say. It's important because there, there is a large Muslim and growing Muslim population in the West, right? Um, so how can there be coexistence, peaceful coexistence between Muslims, Christians and secular people? How can they all work together? Is there a message there you can give us something to reassure us? Secular, uh, it's a Christian idea. It doesn't exist in Islam. Laicity doesn't exist in Islam. Mm. Islam is a nation. They don't recognize the nations as we understand us as Western people because this is from our brain. So even when you bring it to their countries, they cannot accept it because Islam is their nation. Look in the Middle East with the Eastern Christian after 1,400 years of living together. They have the same roots. They, have, they are from the same tribes, from the same blood. And they are able to kill each other because he is Christian. He is uh, uh, adorating three gods because for them we have three gods. He has pictures of the Maryam, of the Virgin Mary. And this is haram. This is defended to make any physical representation for this kind of stupid things they can kill you even if they live with you since thousand years how you can think that it will be the peace with these people who are in europe and we have nothing in common in our history just the crusades they they hate us yeah. they really hate us this yeah. is what I, I understand from them i just one more question on this um and i'm going to press the point so there are mosques throughout the west here in america and in europe different cities and so on are we to believe then that there's violence being preached in these mosques in all of these mosques 
have we something to worry about? Because a lot of people listening will say, gee, they leave the mosque, whatever, Saturday or whatever day they celebrate, and they look like nice people to me. This is, I'm baffled. That's what they're going to say. No, sorry. Yeah, of course, of course. You know, for example, in Syria, in Syria, it was like that. But after the mosque, it's, you know, it's a kind of little embassy. Most of the time, the preach is in Arabic. The U.S. people, they know Arabic. Even in the Christian church in the Middle East, the government put kind of spy of the government to hear what the priest is saying. Why? Because in the mosque, they used to make politic speech more than religious speech. So yeah. they think that the Christian do the same. So me, what I say is that it's better to have someone who understands Arabic to understand what they say. And also just to be careful because you have good Muslim people. This is sure. I will not deny it. But if some, if one day you have a sheikh, a priest coming from Qatar or Arabi Saudi or from each, I don't know which country, and he will come to give a teaching, a lesson of Quran in the mosque, you cannot know how the people, they will change their mind. This is what happened in Syria. After many years, the preach were from other uh, imam, other priests of Islam. And it, it's very easy to, to just to change. Uh, this is the experience I have. I hope it's not everywhere the same, but this is what I saw in Syria and Iraq and in many other countries. We're near the end of the interview, Alexandra. You're in Paris today, and I just want to note that you are a teacher of history and geography, so you're well-grounded on a lot of things. And um, how is your life today? No, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. Uh, I'm, I'm very glad. I'm, uh, my wife is giving the birth of a second baby in uh, one or two weeks. So I'm, uh, Congratulations. I'm a happy, thank you so much. I'm a happy father. Um, I continue to work in my NGO. I'm uh, the... Uh, director, uh, deputy of the direction of the operation. I'm, I'm still moving on the ground. I'm, I'm not, you know, so traumatized. I mean, I fought, I fought it. I fought it through the books to turn a kind of page also in my life. I make conferences. Um, I'm, I'm stable on these things. And, uh, yes, it was a rich experience. Of course, I would not like to renew it, but, uh, how are your three other colleagues doing? It's, it's different. Yes. Uh, it's not the same for all of us. It's diff yeah. it, the way we, we came back to the normal life has been dif difficult for some of us. And uh, I cannot speak in their name, but we are so, so, so much united. We're like brothers now. We were already before, but now it's... Uh, yeah, so much more. I feel we have to come and do another interview uh, some other time, maybe in a few months, to to take this to another level. Because you're living in France, it's um, I guess Catholic by culture, and at one time was a very deeply Catholic country, but it's quite secular today, uh, France. Yeah, it's not Christian anymore. We are like three percent of Christian in the country. Muslim are more than us, and. Uh, yeah, it's culturally speaking, it's a little bit, but it's it's going. It's uh... yeah. Well, I mean, at one point, different periods in its time, it was a really Catholic country, devotions, and went through all these periods um, in its time, and then it, it, it secularized. And I suppose you could go back to the time of Napoleon and Reformation and um, the French Revolution. All the various upheavals through history might explain some of that trajectory but the name of your book is kidnapped in iraq it's available from sophia institute press it's a great read and i thank you for being on my show and let's do it again take care thank you thank you so much john thank you so much thank God you bless. 
You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.